Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. It's your host, Taylor, and first off, happy 2023. I really hope that your year is starting off good and that this is a really monumental year for fixing climate change, for becoming an activist, for making your mark on the world, and making a positive mark on the world. So, if you're listening to this podcast, you are starting out your year right because you are here to be hopeful. Well, we want to take a little bit of a step back right now because we're going back to an episode that was recorded in 2022. This was for our, the third part of our three-part series of highlighting and spotlighting youth activists who attended COP27. So I don't want to speak too much because this is a longer episode. Um, the episodes usually aren't this long, but, you know, I don't want to cut anything of what any of the amazing youth activists who came onto the podcast, what they talked about, because it was so important. So enjoy these next three activists. I hope you are, again, like I said, having a great start to your year, and I really hope you learn something from these amazing activists. So let's get right into our first interview, and our first interview is with Haley Campbell, and she's a climate activist born to former climate deniers in the United States currently living on native Hawaiian land, and co-executive director of the youth-led nonprofit Care About Climate. She works to empower young people to be their best advocate in climate decision-making spaces, including through Care About Climate's youth analysis of NDCs and COP training programs and leading the push for youth inclusion in climate policymaking as a contact point of Youngo's Action for Climate Empowerment team. So I'd love to introduce and welcome Haley. So hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on this amazing podcast. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're on and I'm so excited to hear about your experiences. So would you mind describing your experience at COP27 as a youth activist? So for me, COP27 was my third ever COP experience. And for me, it was one of the most meaningful ones for me, despite all of the logistical nightmares, I'm sure that you've probably read about in the news with accessibility, funding, visas, you know, lack of accommodations, things like that. But for me, it was really meaningful because it was the first time I felt like I had a really important role as a youth activist in this space. One of the things that I'm a part of is the Children and Youth Constituency of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, otherwise known as YoungGo for short. And with YoungGo, I help lead our Action for Climate Empowerment ACE working group, which was one of the main topics of negotiations for this COP on, again, ACE and understanding what are the next steps and the actions that are going to be taken by countries to implement ACE, which is ultimately what countries are have agreed to to empower their communities to act on the climate crisis at various different scales. For me, ACE is really important because it reminds us all that every single person, every community must be a part of the solution of the climate crisis. And in a way, it is our government's responsibility to ensure that everyone has the resources, knowledge, information, tools, and skills that we need to be a part of tackling the climate crisis. And so at COP27, one of the really important outcomes was this new action plan on ACE, which I had the amazing opportunity as a youth activist to help shape 
And we did this through convening different meetings with other constituencies, meetings with different countries, texting different countries. It was really quite, quite incredible to see the difference you can make when you're able to build you know, trustful relationships with different countries who are being champions of your ideas and champions of the texts that we are writing and proposing to get included in these types of outcomes. And so as an activist, for me, it was really exciting to just have everything in motion and ultimately get text on youth inclusion included in the ACE Action Plan. It was a really, really big win for young people that allows us to now be formally seen as stakeholders, not just in designing climate policies, but also in implementation. And now we have this really important document that we can take to our government and say, hey, you agreed to include us. Here we are. Here's how we want to be included. And as an activist, you can't really ask for, for much more than seeing your decision text that you're proposing included at such a high stakes event. And so for me, I think if I could wrap this up in kind of one short takeaway, it's that if all the different politicians and countries at COP took a little bit more time to connect with frontline communities and maybe even a little bit more time to be activists themselves and really understand the roots behind why we are here fighting for our futures, then we might have a lot more solidarity and a lot more action towards creating a better future that is reflective of our needs. And so as an activist, I would describe my experience as really challenging at times because negotiations are not easy and there's a lot of things that we still didn't get, but also incredibly rewarding because you're putting your blood, sweat and tears into fighting for your future. And we're seeing it pay off in a policy document and we get to look forward to seeing that pay off when we hold our leaders accountable to implementing those ideas. That's amazing. It sounds like you had such a huge and important role at COP27. So one, applause yourself for that. That's amazing. Um, it also sounds like you were able, like what you were doing, the work you were doing was able to help people and youth activists who feel left out because I know a lot of people were discussing like, oh, like, they felt left out or like youth washing. So it's amazing that there was still a space and a place for people and especially youth activists to have their voices heard. Since again, I keep like saying this over and over in previous episodes is, you know, we need youth to be present because youth are going to be the most impacted. Um, so it sounds like the work you're doing is amazing. So thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. And I think to your point about having a space to connect, something else unique about this COP is it had the first ever children and youth pavilion, which was an amazing space where I saw, you know, politicians coming to take photos and media coming to take photos and talking to young people and learning more about our experiences. And though some people just stopped to, to snap that Instagram photo, right? Others were really there trying to listen and to learn. And I think that having that space was just so important for allowing any youth activists to make the impact that they wanted to have at this COP. And as I mentioned, this COP wasn't perfect. We didn't get, you know, action towards mitigation to keep that 1.5 alive. We did get commitments to say, hey, we need to be doing this, but we didn't get that action for implementation. We didn't see the finance um, committed to all the way for things like adaptation, um, but we did get a lot of other amazing wins like that loss and damage finance facility and having this pavilion and having so, many, so much media attention on those of us on the front lines of the climate crisis, which I hope continues even though the two weeks of, of COP have have ended and so I think it was just 
really an incredible time to to be an activist for those of us that were there and for those that were not able to make it I'm glad that you're having this podcast because every single voice is really important and I'm hoping that through more things like your podcast and other outreach there can be more power to get more young people to have access to these spaces exactly yeah and we we need to start somewhere right so for like the pavilion I'm so glad it was like the first one obviously this should have been years ago but we had it for the first time so being able to take that space um is amazing and that so many activists and young activists did show up and were able and the ones who were able to like myself I wasn't able to but we still get to hear all these amazing stories from people who did go and I feel like the youth are doing such a good job of sharing the knowledge of what did happen because you know I don't hear anything from the governments or even in the news you see like all the bad things but the youth are coming back and sharing their experiences and sharing the knowledge to be able to create the change we need from what happened at COP. Yeah, that's a really amazing way to put it. I don't think I could say it better myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've been working on that one for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but so for the next thing is, was there a lot of greenwashing? Did you see a lot of greenwashing or hear about anything? Um, yeah, just your experience on that a little bit. Well, first and foremost, we know that Coca-Cola, one of the world's largest plastic polluters on the planet, was the official sponsor of COP. And so from the very front, it seems like there was this, you know, facade of, yes, we're here together for implementation at COP. This is the time where we're going to be delivering and doing all these amazing things to tackle the climate crisis. Yet right next to that was, hey, have this free Coca-Cola soda you know, around the venue, but, oh, if you want food, you're probably not going to be able to get it because the line is too long or it's too expensive or they don't have vegetarian and vegan options. And so I think that the greenwashing was definitely on full display, but something else I really noticed a lot at this COP was this idea that I call COP tourism, where people come to COP just to say that they were there or just to say, I spoke on this panel and just to say, know here's this really amazing thing that we are doing which is really important but it's often removed from how that really important thing can connect into the negotiations where ultimately you know the change is being is being made by decisions that are coming out of this conference and that's what's going to empower global change that we need that system change that we need is happening through these policy outcomes and so for me I did see a lot of what I call cop tourism people there just to kind of stroke their egos and say, I'm really awesome and not being open to taking criticism on some of their ideas or being open to saying, here's how we can do better. And here's what we want to do more. And here's how we want to connect people to doing more things to get truly together and collaboratively. And one time I even saw this person in a negotiation room that just took out their phone and was like taking selfie videos and saying like, oh, I'm at COP, I'm in negotiations, but you know, I, I went up to them afterwards and I talked to them about their, their interest and like, you know, oh, I saw you recording, like, you know, what, what is this for? And they were like, oh, I just, you know, thought it'd be cool to show that I was here. Um, and I don't really know what's going on in, in this room at all, but I'm standing in it, you know? And I, and I think that there's some issues with that on my perspective where people who really want to be there and share their voice and you this opportunity where they're probably never going to be closer to someone making decisions on their future and their life, even from their own country. And that spot is taken by someone who's just there 
to say that they were there, but not there to make an impact. And that's not to say nobody's, everyone's voice isn't important. And that's not to say that people don't necessarily deserve to be there. But for me, it was an important reflective moment. Like, is my, is myself taking up space at this COP where space is limited, really useful? Is it pushing progress forward? And to me, I felt like with my role with Youngo, as I mentioned, and with my nonprofit Care About Climate, we were there uplifting voices and it felt meaningful. And I would encourage people who are listening to this to think about that the next time COP runs, comes around and to really understand and reflect is, is my position here and what I want to get out of this really influencing an outcome or am I just here to say that I was here? And, and I think the same goes for the sponsorships was Coca-Cola just sponsoring because they want to give an illusion that they're doing something and they care about the climate probably. Um, and is that really pushing things forward? And whose responsibility is it to make sure that people who are there really, really need to be there? Um, and I think that that's something that I, I was really disappointed by um, at the COP. I really love the term COP tourism. Um, I mean, it's horrible that people are doing that, but I love the term. Um, I think people just need, when they're going to these spaces, they need to be, like you're saying, purposeful. What what are you accomplishing by being there? Are you bringing knowledge back to people? Are you spreading knowledge? Or do you have an important story? And it's taking away, like if you don't, and you're just going, like you said, for the person who was just taking videos and saying, I'm just here because it sounded cool. Like you're taking away a platform and you're taking away space from people who need their voices heard, like specifically people in frontline communities. So I think that's really like heartbreaking that people were able to get into that space and again like you said everyone's voice is important but in these spaces certain voices need to be uplifted more being purposeful and why we go to a space is so important and I'm so glad you brought that up yeah thank you so much and and again I think part of that too is people hear about COP and they think it's this really big opportunity to network and to maybe get the word out about the work they're doing which is really 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 important because we need every single person being a part of tackling the climate crisis, as I mentioned, about why I love working in the A space so much. But I think that there also needs to be more, you know, education and training and understanding of people, you know, when you enter this space, what does that really mean? And that maybe would help people better understand and reflect, is this a useful and meaningful space to me? It's having almost 50,000 people attending this conference where, you know, I think it was like 10,000 or something like that where, where negotiators, which is really important and everyone else was either media or you know observers. And I think, and then in the UN, of course, which we obviously know plays one of the most significant roles there, you know, but out of those, I guess, 30,000 people maybe who are observers, you know, do, are all of them spending, you know, is it the best, out of all the 30,000 people that are there, do they all have a really important purpose and story to tell and bring to this space to really make sure that the decisions are reflecting their lived experiences? I don't know. You know, what I observed is maybe not. Yeah. And that's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I think about like, so I'm going to COP15 for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and I mean, it probably does. If you follow the podcast, you definitely do because I've been talking about it nonstop. Um, but um, like for me, I've been, making like spreadsheets and stuff like what is my intention of going what do I hope to get out of it day by day what do I hope to bring um so it's important that people who are listening to this or 
for people who want to go to cops um, for this cop tourism, just to say you went, that it isn't for tourism, right? It's not for you to get your selfies and then leave. It's an important space and we need things to actually get done in these spaces. And the only way to do that is to be having those voices that need to be heard and the stories that need to be heard and the knowledge that needs to be spread. So for anyone listening, don't do that. Don't be a cop tourist, okay? <laughs> I think the message is be intentional, right? Be intentional with why you're there, what you're doing, what you hope to achieve. And if you're being intentional, then you're definitely in the right space, the right time with the opportunities to be at a cop. Yes, perfectly said. Love that. Um, so for you personally, what is a takeaway from COP27 that gives you hope? Hmm, that's really an, a really good question. There's a lot that always, you know, I, let's see, I describe myself as a climate optimist. I'm always finding the glimmers of hope that are hanging on, sometimes by a thread and sometimes out there in full force. And to me at this COP was truly the solidarity among every single person there who was on the front lines of the climate crisis from every constituency coming together fighting for action, knowing that when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, it's not really just policies who that are making the difference. Ultimately, it's people, it's empathy, it's our emotions, it's our experiences that are the things that are driving progress forward or are holding it up. And I think what gave me the most hope was the opportunity that I had to experience the culture cop that happened outside of the walls of the big conference where there is this mass chaos. And there at this cultural place of learning and growing for me, I was able to listen and learn from indigenous leaders from around the world and really feel the emotion that they speak with when they're talking about climate change. They're, they're talking about their lives and everything that's connected to them and the way that they are and the way that really humanity is as a whole. And for me, that gave me a lot of hope to see people coming together to help other people like me, who is not an indigenous person, have the opportunity to connect with them and experience and learn and grow from them in a way that can push progress forward on creating the solutions we need to tackle the climate crisis that are valuing the ways of knowing that our systems that we live in today have kind of stepped all over in a way and because they're not forgotten I don't want to say that our systems have forgotten them because they're there they've suppressed them they've oppressed them and I think for me that experience really highlighted to me and in my experience at the the people's um cop space with this big gathering of an entire plenary room of just observers standing and speaking in solidarity for our futures were the most powerful things for me at this cop because it reminded me that I don't have all the answers to tackling the climate crisis and the answers don't lie with one person. They lie with every single person who's living this, fighting for this every day. And having that reminder in that space to grow and learn together with people who aren't going to judge you because you grew up in a system not built for you, or you grew up in a system that taught you so many of the wrong things, It that doesn't stop you from learning and growing and doesn't mean you shouldn't be in this space if you're truly there to be intentional and be a part of it and be a part of our future together and so for me those two things really gave me 
a lot of hope. And if I could sum it up, it would just be truly the power of people at the COP that I had the fortune of engaging with and working with and just being in the presence of to learn from. And I love that you bring up community. That's something I always try to bring up. And I feel like I've said that in almost every podcast episode. And it's to have community. It's so important to be, to have empathy and to be open to hearing people's stories. And I think we're getting to a place where we're more open to hearing people's stories, but it's about listening as well and active listening and hearing and trying to understand what someone is going through and why they are in this space. And I love that you were able to feel that community and able to hear from many different people and hear their lived experiences and what they bring to the plate and what they bring to the table for combating climate change. So I'm glad that you got that experience and I'm glad that there was a space for that at this COP as well. Yeah, thank you. Me too. It was just so incredibly moving to be with the community of people who are willing to to challenge one another, but also understand and build empathy with one another and understanding that only when the people come together for implementation and that we're united, then we won't be defeated, which was a really big theme of the COP. I love that. It really is power to the people. Like it's, if the governments or people in power or CEOs, whatever it is, aren't going to do it, we will. And like, we will hold them accountable until they do it. So I love that. I love that a lot. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate these questions and the opportunity to share my voice and my experience and hope that for anyone who's listening to the podcast, if you're trying to figure out your climate story and understand how you can get involved more please know that you can reach out to me as someone who would love to help connect the dots for you and help you find your space in the movement. Because as I mentioned, every single person deserves to be a part of this movement. Every single person should be a part of this movement, but it will only work if we're all doing it together and bringing each other along um, with each other um, along the way. Perfect. Yeah. Is there is there anything else that you wanted to add or share before we wrap up? I would say maybe my hope for the upcoming year as we start already thinking about the next COP, COP28 on climate in the UAE is to remind everyone that though COP is is two weeks, sea levels are still rising, temperatures are still rising, biodiversity is being lost, lives are being lost, culture is being lost to climate impacts every day already. And we can't wait a whole nother year to only care about the climate for two weeks. And I really hope that in this upcoming year, we'll be able to see more discussions and conversations on climate change and how we're tackling the climate crisis and how we're including people of different backgrounds in these spaces that are on the front lines of the climate crisis in ensuring that we do have a future so that this next COP really does come together for implementation where we're keeping 1.5 alive, where people are being included and where change is truly, truly happening. I love that addition so much. I'm so glad I asked that. Um, that I really love how you worded that. Um, that was beautifully said. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me and for hosting me. It was so great to meet you, Taylor. Amazing host.
<laughs> Thank you. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Don't make, don't, don't make me feel so confident. In myself. No, be confident. That's the key. Confidence is key. And it is really an amazing, amazing opportunity and experience. And you should really be so proud of yourself for pushing the movement forward in a way that feels meaningful to you, which is the most important thing anyone can do. Thank you so much. Don't make me cry. <laughs> but thank you so much. And thank you again for coming on. That wraps up our interview with Haley, and now it's time to move on to the next youth activist. We're now going to be hearing from Haiza Franca, and she is the Youth for Nature Regional Director for Europe and Central Asia, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast. So let's welcome Haiza. Okay, so hi, how are you? Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm so happy and excited. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear about your COP experience. So do you mind describing to us what your experience at COP27 was like as a youth activist? For me, the experience was weird and a bit bittersweet in many ways. I love being around people. I'm a very sociable person, so it gives me a lot of energy to meet new people, other young people, and to be around so many cool things happening to save the climate and the planet. So this was definitely, it gave me a lot of energy and I'm still processing a lot of it, but it's also a bit weird because somehow I felt a bit, this was my second COP and I felt this existential internal crisis hit a bit harder of thinking, we are discussing something very serious and it's somehow it doesn't feel like we are. So it's uh, it's also a bit weird. And somehow I also felt that I was being pushed to have some roles that I was not very comfortable with. I'm not an angry person and I hate being angry. And I usually I prefer dialogue always. And I like being nice and I like being happy and smiley about things. But somehow there were some places and occasions that I just had to be angry because the way things were being done was completely ridiculous. So somehow I felt that there is this entire expectation that uh, young people are going to come as the angry ones and that they're going to come as the kind of like, here we go again, uh, being angry, talking loud, uh, being pushy. And I hate this role. This is not something I'm comfortable with myself. And somehow I felt that I unfortunately had to do it because there was no other way and someone had to be this person in the room and unfortunately I was the only one willing to be this person. So uh, a lot of things <laughs> basically can describe how it feels to be a young activist in COP. Yeah, I feel at 100% with the not getting angry thing. I'm someone who gets angry very fast. So it's like, especially when, you know, around climate change and climate action, which is so important. And when people are like dismissing it or beating around the bush, so to say, like, I think it's just, it, it gets me angry and it brings a lot of emotions out. And it's hard not to get like, to feel emotions and to get angry or upset about something. So I totally feel that. But since you went to another cop, do you mind like explain like if there's any differences between these ones? I know you said this one, you felt a lot more emotions. Is there any like, differences logistically that you could see or noticed? I feel I feel they were very different. Um, somehow, I think when you are participating in these international events, it always takes a second time to start feeling more confident, like you actually know the place and like you actually know how things are uh, happening. 
I'm a bit of a newcomer to the climate movement. I was usually working more towards social impact and with social projects. So it's very recent in my uh, trajectory and journey that I started being more involved with climate at this international level. So I think in any case, it would be different for me because um, it was a learning experience the first time. So I was very confused and very lost. And now I felt I could actually be part of it in a meaningful way. But in terms of logistics, it was, uh, of course, different. I felt that there was more surveillance in the second one. There were more safety and security concerns and uh, some more, I felt a little bit more panic around this, these concerns, which I don't want to say that they didn't happen in the UK because many activists, they were also worried about how things were gonna happen and they were also being surveilled. But somehow this year felt a little bit more intense and a little bit more close to us somehow. And there was also this atmosphere of, of the space not being very open to civil society. So somehow we at least, the idea, this is not based on any data, but this is more based on talking with other movements and talking with other people that the places for civil society were more limited this year than in the past year. So of course, uh, of course, companies and, uh, and also parties, they were, were represented there. And for those who are not aware of how a COP works, there are different types of badges and different types of ways that you can participate in this. So you need to be accredited officially by the UNFCCC, which is the UN uh, secretary that organizes this kind of access. And there are three ways that you can participate. So basically you can have a party badge that it's a, a state badge. So you represent a government. You can have also um, an observer badge that you represent civil society. So you represent NGOs, you also represent companies and so on. And then there is also the press badge that you represent media and you're there to do media coverage. And the impression that we had this year is that the civil society badges and the observers ones, they were way, way less. And it was also this like crazy badge, badge hunt inside the venue as well. Like, do you have a badge? Do you have a badge? All the time, because there were many people that they were out of this, uh, of this space because of this. So I would say that this was maybe a bit of a different uh, vibe as well from last year, because I felt there were more abundant the badges for civil society than this year. But this is, of course, not based in any data, and I could be totally wrong. Uh, this was just the impressions that we got from being around other organizations and movements on the ground. And of course, this could also just mean that more people are interested in climate uh, climate change and more more organizations are now engaged with climate change and more organizations are also being created to deal with climate change and of course the competition to be in this space increases which is of course a good news because we want more civil society involved well thank you for describing the differences in the badges because i'm so confused with all of that i'm as much as like i've been in the climate space for like a few years now COP conferences have been something that I haven't truly been engaged with, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say that, but it's true. Like, I feel like I just don't have the understanding of what they are, and I wasn't really educated on what they are. So kind of playing catch up with listening to everyone's experiences and trying to put my own, you know, not spin on it, but try to get, try to understand what it's really like. And I'm going to COP15, so 
I know it's completely different. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's on biological diversity and not the climate change one that we're talking about right now. But I'm still nervous for it. I don't know. I just feel like I'm not going to understand anything that's going on. But I totally feel you as well when you're talking about being new to a space Um, because I've focused more on wildlife conservation. So now focusing on wildlife conservation and climate change, I totally feel that there's, you know, not there is a difference, obviously, but then at the same time, they both come together and they both play a role in the crisis we're facing. So I totally feel that. And I totally feel (laughs) all the emotions as well. Um, So going on to the next question is, was there a lot of greenwashing at COP27 that you noticed or that you felt? Uh, so just just before we move to this topic, I would like to say that you have no reason to feel embarrassed by this. Cops are made to be exclusive. They are made to feel overwhelming, and they are made they are made and designed in a way that we feel we don't even deserve to be there. So this is something that I was the entire time thinking unconsciously and sometimes consciously, like, why am I here? Do I deserve to be here? Am I the right person to be here? And this is absolutely ridiculous because whenever we are discussing anything that has to deal with the humanity's future, with our shared future, anyone could be there. So somehow I feel these processes are overly complicated and they are overly made in a way that is not accessible. So, um, and this is just one like really tiny part of climate action. So you shouldn't feel (laughs) embarrassed at all about this. And about greenwashing, I feel sometimes that greenwashing is a word that grows so big that can be used to describe literally anything nowadays. So somehow it feels a little bit hard for me to um, think, is this greenwashing? Uh, is this like a real thing? What are they doing? And uh, so so it's a, it's a little bit difficult, I must say, to think if there was greenwashing, especially because of the things that I was doing there. I feel that uh, as in any space with regarding climate change and conservation and any place where we are discussing sustainability and regeneration, there are always going to be actors that are going to come and they're going to use this as an opportunity to pretend that they are doing more than they are actually doing. So this, uh, this happens, of course, but I must admit that I was in a bit of a bubble where I didn't see this happening a lot. So uh, maybe I was a little bit protected and uh, not really seeing everything that was going on. Um, but but also you can you can also see, so this is also another uh, explanation of how COP usually works in terms of space, is that you have the negotiations rooms uh, where the decision makers are taking decisions and having conversations and the proper negotiations on the agreement that the parties and countries are gonna uh, pursue. And that there is also this space that it's called kind of like the side event zone or the blue zone and the green zone. And basically this is where you have a bunch of pavilions and where companies and organizations that showcase what they are doing. And I feel in this area, it looks a little bit like uh, like somehow a business fair in a, in a way that it's kind of like big and flashy. And you see so many states that are traditionally uh, relying so much on oil and gas exploration, doing all this kind of like flashy sustainability is our thing. And you know that obviously it's not and like some companies that are obviously doing very harmful practices using the space to promote themselves. 
So yes, of course it happens. But at the same time, I also worked with the private sector before. So my entrance in the, my entry point in this environmental movement was through the private sector actually. And despite being a very critical person, I also recognize that usually if the companies are willing to be in the spaces, they are at least a little bit better than everyone else who is not even willing to come to a place like COP or that are coming in secret as lobbyists. This is way more harmful because we don't see it, it's invisible and we have no way to track what they are doing. Yeah, no way to ask for accountability. So somehow it's, it seems like I'm, I'm not being ambitious enough somehow that I say at least they are there, but at least they are there. <laughs> wow, I really like that. I mean, everyone comes from a different like educational and career background. And I really appreciate the fact that you came from the private sector and that you have this insight on it. Because I feel like a lot of the times the private sector is just like demonized in, in general. And having that different perspective of, you know, we still need action, but to see that, okay, at least some people are doing things, we need to start somewhere. So I really, that's like cool perspective that you have there on that. Um, so I appreciate that. I think for me, what's, what's important with the private sector is that I, I see myself as a person that demonizes the private sector many times as well. <laughs> because with all the respect, the private sector is doing shit. Uh, and I, th I think that we can track the responsibles for this crisis that we are in very deep into the private sector as well as in governments. So this is happening and I think there is no way to hide it, but also in my experience, and I feel I'm a bit of a radical person in that sense. And I was seen as a radical person when I was working more actively with the private sector. But at the same time, I see that there are so many incredible people working to push for change and they are being successful. And these companies, they are not abstract entities just floating in the air. You know, they're not just kind of things away from everything. They are made by people. And I place a lot of trust on people for doing good. And I think that once some of them are already being super brave to say like, hey, we are not going to do that way. We are going to be doing differently from the inside that I feel once this movement gets even more strength and gets more momentum, it's going to become even a greater kind of potential for change. So I also believe that there are many cool people that are trying so hard from inside these companies. They're kind of activists from inside to make sure that it's going to change, that I have a lot of faith on them as well. Yeah, we definitely need environmentalists in all sectors to be able to promote this change and to actually move towards the change. And I feel like also like what you're saying about being radical, I'm very radical. And I think we kind of need to come into this space with a radical mindset now since we've waited so not we but you know the world has waited so long to act and that we we need a radical mindset to be able to actually do some of I mean some of them aren't some of the ideas aren't radical but some of them are and we need them we need all ideas to be to, to get us out of this crisis so I appreciate you also bringing that up such amazing points that you're bringing up um so do you mind also now talking about some of your key takeaways from COP27 and from those takeaways, what ones give you hope? 
It gives me a lot of hope that we managed to get something concrete regarding loss and damage. And if you are interviewing youth activists, probably you already heard this one. <laughs> so I won't repeat myself so much in this, but this basically means compensating for the damage that is already occurring due to the climate crisis by the ones that are the most responsible ones. And I think this is, for me, what's very interesting and uh, very good about this. It's, um, I work a lot with economic change and with the change of our economic systems. So when I was talking about private sector and about me demonizing private sector <laughs> has a lot to do with the idea that the economic systems are, in my opinion, the main cause of the crisis that we are currently living through. And I feel we can only change things for good if we change our economic systems. And I feel this loss and damage agreement gives a lot of space for that because it's, it's uh, recognizing the need for compensation in a way that it's not a loan, it's not an investment, it's not something that I'm going to make you stay even more in depth, which is something that traditionally developed and rich countries they have been doing since uh, colonization. So this is, this, this is an entire new mentality of, of payments. It's just I'm paying you just because it's the just thing to do. And I'm not going to put you in even bigger debt situations. So this already shows a change of how we currently work with this with this economic system of ours in this planet. So somehow this makes me very hopeful and this was a result of decades of hard work and collective work. So I think this this gives me a lot of hope. I love that. Yeah, and thank you for describing loss and damage. Um, I think, again, one of those ideas that people thought of as being so radical and were like, no, it's really not. <laughs> country if you're polluting more and you're causing a crisis you should be helping people that aren't causing it you should be helping people that are getting impacted by what you're causing so it's one of those ideas that i think sometimes people go into thinking or outside of our movement think oh well you know that's that's a radical idea why are we going to do that well it's not really radical we have to change that mindset so it's very true with loss and damage and wasn't it not even on the agenda to start with like it had to be fought for to be on the agenda which is crazy to me <laughs> yes but somehow I also that there is this um scholar Judith Butler uh she's very famous because she does a lot of things around gender studies but lately she has been also researching the issue of otherness so she was doing a lot of work around Palestine and she was also doing a lot of work around uh, the situation with the housing crisis and all of this in the US. And she talks a lot about how violent it is to claim something is not realistic. And when you do that, you basically close any possibility for this to be realistic. So somehow I also feel it's very important that all of us that are building this movement, that we dare to be radical and that we dare to dream. So I'm, I'm totally a dreamer. I'm 100% a dreamer type of person. And I usually do not accept this type of things of, this is not realistic, this is not possible. Everything is possible if we have the will. And when we say it's not possible, you're actually closing this possibility and you're shaping a new reality. So somehow I also feel that hope, the issue of hope has a lot to do with making sure that we create the space in our reality 
to make it happen. And we do this with words and we do this with collective work and we do this with imagination and arts and all of this. But somehow I, I totally see this need of being radical and just being kind of, no, I, I will dream of this and, and it's gonna happen. <laughs> Uh, to kind of like stay very, very aligned with, yeah, this, this realistic bullshit, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. We can't, we need to dream beyond the realistic. Yeah, and so true. And I also think that sometimes the people who think some things are so radical, you're just, we're hearing something from a different perspective other than our own. And some people will think that's radical when it's really not. And when we say or push it off as being something radical all the time and put it in a corner, we're excluding groups of people that have always been excluded from these spaces. Um, so I think when people, you know, when I say outside the movement, anyone can be inside the movement. When I think about like people who don't care about climate change, they're like, oh, that's radical. And it's like, no, you're just hearing something from something that you've never heard from before. You're hearing a perspective that's different from your own that you've been around and been surrounded with so I think it's so we need to be radical and at the same time we need to be open to other perspectives that for us seem radical but they might not be so I appreciate that as well and hearing that quote I love that I'm going to have to look that activist up later yeah it's amazing she's she's like incredible yes but just just one quick comment about this as well that um I was just discussing this with my partner and my friend about the energy transition and I think it also gives us, I, I also think it's important to show the different perspectives of radicalism. So for example, when we talk about phasing out fossil fuels, it may sound as radical and unfeasible, but the alternative to it, it's a lot of victims to extreme weather events. And it's a lot of victims to any sorts of, of things that are caused by climate crisis and climate-induced migration and health challenges and all of this. So I always feel like, what is it more radical? Um, transition our economies, uh, decrease our consumption patterns, equalize our salaries and our decent job opportunities or have millions of people dying because of the climate crisis. Is it really more radical, the second one or the first one in this case? So I think it's also, for me, it's also an exercise of perspective and of showing what we don't do, if we don't do this, what is going to happen. I love that perspective as well. Um, but is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up the episode? Um, I would just say a final sentence regarding that is related to what you just say. I feel our entire conversations around the climate crisis are so selfish because even if we are not considering on how it's gonna impact us only, uh, we also need to consider how it's gonna impact the biodiversity and the future in this planet. I hear a lot of people saying, it's gonna be fine, or even if we die, nature is gonna survive because nature is bigger than all of us, but all the loss of all the more than human life in this world and all, all the kind of like amazing things that nature developed through millions of years through evolution are just going to be lost. And I think this is also valuable and many times not included in this um, debate and not included as a meaningful thing, which is very sad. <laughs> so somehow it's also a call for this um, aspects that go beyond ourselves and beyond our human nature to also be considered. That gave me chills. 
because <laughs> I I always see like pictures of like little baby animals and I'm like oh so they're just we're just gonna let them die <laughs> like or even just like exactly I, exactly I and this this is like so selfish you know it's just it's just so annoyingly selfish to think of and even the things that we tend to find ugly because I personally I don't like insects so much I I'm terrified of insects especially the ones that fly but at the same time I'm always feeling like it's so selfish of me or of other people to think that they just deserve to die or that they are less than us or that their existence is worth less than our existence so it's also something that I I feel I'm a I'm a big human-centered person myself <laughs> I think it's very difficult and hard not to be so usually when I'm thinking of my fears related to the climate crisis they're pretty much related to my existence and my fears and the fears of the future generations but also I feel like I shouldn't forget and I shouldn't leave behind the bees and the dogs and the all the huge and beautiful biodiversity that we have in this planet and for anyone who's scared of insects or specific animal I always say you can be afraid of something you just have to respect it's what it brings to the table and it brings it doesn't need and when we say bring something to the table a lot of people think oh money or or is it giving me something no it brings to the table just its value of living its ecosystem service it's inherent exactly thing to it should live just like everyone else has the right to live they have the right to live as well and we can fear them but respect them yes their life has value so I yeah, I think the... this is basically it. Yeah. <laughs> and ethics of every life having value would be amazing in this planet. Yeah, let's. I hope we can. I'm. I'm feeling hopeful that we can move towards that. Hopefully, <laughs> I but... think we are moving towards that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least some of us are, and some of us are trying to bring the others together. Um, I, I also feel hopeful. I think it's definitely the younger generations that are going to get us out of this crisis. Um, it's definitely not the older generations, in my opinion. And of course, there's older generations doing amazing work as well. I just feel like the movement is really starting to be taken up by young people, which is what we need because we will be the most impacted. Yes, I, I totally agree. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me and for being so open to my interests. <laughs> and thanks for doing the podcast. I love it. I love the idea and I love your narrative. I think it's so important. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our interview with Haisa. And we will be moving on to our very last youth activist that we will be spotlighting for this series. So let's welcome our next guest, Kiati. She is an international student currently studying chemical engineering at UC Berkeley. She's active on her campus and is a climate change activist. She organized the UC Berkeley delegation to COP27 to give students the opportunity to understand international climate negotiations, and COP27 was also her first COP. She's extremely passionate about climate change mitigation technologies, and her attendance at COP has convinced her to study the intersection between technology and policy for her master's. So let's welcome Kiati. So hi, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. So do you mind describing your experience at COP27 just in general and also as a youth activist? Yeah, for sure. In one word, and I, I'm pretty sure you've heard this a lot, but it was very overwhelming. And like, just to keep it very like a high overview, I'm not sure if you've heard of the term climate anxiety. 
I've like heard it a lot at Berkeley. It's like spoken about a lot. And that was the first time I felt climate anxiety at such a big conference on like many levels as to like me being worried about the future, me being worried that countries are just not doing enough. Countries are selfish instead of being selfless about their actions. It was like all levels of climate anxiety. And to be honest, like it's been a month since COP and I feel like I'm just now a little more prepared to speak on it because it's been so much but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about like how we happen like I happened to join COP and attend um, I was actually able to go from my university side but because my university isn't registered as an accredited organization I didn't have a batch and I'm not sure if you know uh, this year's COP setup usually there's a green zone and a blue zone and green zone is supposed to be like public access you don't need a batch and um, a lot of events happen in the green zone but this year the COP was mainly like focused on like everything was focused on the blue zone like you need to have a badge and access to enter and then only could you be part of like conversations there and the green zone was very like oh these are like good projects in the sustainability field like very much of a showcase and no conversations really being happening it was a museum so it was really important to have a badge a blue zone access badge and that's where like my cop journey started I like reached out to over 500 NGOs worldwide because it wasn't just me. I was working to get badges for my entire Berkeley delegation. We were about 10 people. And it was nice that all these NGOs were like, oh, we love youth enrollment. You know, we want you to be there. We're glad that you're interested in attending the COP. And they were very helpful in um, giving us badges because they want youth representation. But when, when, when we went to the COP, day one of us being there, we realized that us, like the youth, the indigenous people, people from other underrepresented communities, they're just there as like a poster face. Like they're just there to be there. No one's really interested in talking to us, but we're just there to sort of balance out the numbers. Like the first thing that happened when I entered the COP was there was the there were these indigenous people and they were dressed in their native, like, you know, in their native attire to represent their culture. And people were taking pictures of them. And I sort of I I thought it was a little disrespectful because it it didn't feel inclusive. Like pe they were treated as like they were in a museum and you don't know what these people are, who they are. And I thought it was disrespectful that people just took pictures of them and but didn't bother asking them, why are you here? Striking a conversation with them. You know, these people talk, they're just not statues or they're for you to take a picture of. So I feel like similar to like, you know, th those people and us, we're I feel like we were just there to be there. No one was interested in talking to us. So that's why I say it's overwhelming. But a good thing is that this year there were a lot of youth negotiators at the COP. I wasn't one of them, so I was really lost. Um, I don't know if I was there to network or learn. Um, I think both. But um, yeah, I, I think it was just overall overwhelming. And next time, if you're going there, go there as part of a community, as a group of people who has an agenda. Every, everyone there is there for an agenda, be it country pavilions who are there to negotiate their terms about like how responsible they are for loss and damage, for example. you know, Or there are groups like nuclear energy groups that are there to advocate for their cause that nuclear energy should be given an equal status like renewable. But if you're just there as a floater, it can be very overwhelming to have you can't attend the COP without an opinion you know you should go there with an opinion even if it is to blame xyz country 
or be in support of XYZ country, you have to like have an opinion. Otherwise, you're just going to be swept around by like the 10,000 things you've heard from 10,000 people because everyone is right in their own place, you know? But then this whole picture is about like who's more right, you know, and who can do more in their power. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think in in just in, in in everything I said, the point was that it is overwhelming to be there as a younger person who doesn't really want to be heard. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally feel that when you talk about climate anxiety, I have like horrible climate anxiety. Like I'll be driving a car and be like, mm, okay, <laughs> I'm like burning the world down. <laughs> so I totally feel that in every single way. Um, and also like, you know, as I told you before the podcast started, I'm going to COP15. So I totally, and that's my first COP and it's not even a climate, I mean, it's still very important, but it's not like the big climate change one that gets a lot of, gets a lot more, um, let's say news surrounding it, um, Mm -hmm. and spotlight, but I'm still very like nervous for it because there's so much going on. And again, I feel like I have an agenda going in, but I feel like I'm not always going to be taken seriously just because of our age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm nervous for that, but I also am like prepared from hearing all the other youth, youth activists who've said similar things when they attended COP. Um, but yeah, I'm prepared for it, but I don't think it's, I think when you're there, like when you were there, was it like you were kind of prepared, but then it just like hit you when you're there, like, oh, wow, this is really like gatekeepy. I don't know. <laughs> Like, I honestly, I'll tell you something. I thought COP was going to be that conference where everyone's like, yeah, climate change is the main issue and everyone's sort of on the same page. But I wasn't prepared to hear 10,000 different opinions on this one issue. You know, like one country being like, yeah, it is important, but we cannot survive. So climate change is not important to us. One country being like, oh, we've done everything in our power. Now it's your time. Like, you know, like there's so many opinions on this one matter because like COP is this negotiating place. I just wasn't prepared for this. I thought everyone was there to be like, yeah, we need to do more. We're heading towards doom. So this is what we're going to do. But it's more like, oh, we've done this already. We don't need to do more. You need to do more. And we're done. It's like it's like a blame game. So hearing that from countries can be a little you'd feel hopeless attending cops actually sometimes. And I think the older generation isn't as selfless or ambitious as setting those goals. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely. I think especially like I think of like the United States. <laughs> but I think about how we don't in like the United States, we don't really like we, we try to push it on everyone else even though we're like a main contributor mm-hmm. and it's like okay like even the loss and damage fund like when is that going to be set up for people to actually be able to when are we going to able to pay people for the damage we've caused and for them to be able to keep up with climate change and be able to mitigate and adapt um wow. so I think like I always think of that and I'm like why are we keeping negotiating like we know the problem so I hear that like cops yeah. are so important but at the same time how much can we negotiate about the facts like climate change is here we know that like yeah are we gonna do something I don't know if like you follow COP26 but like this year like I don't it was a big deal that Biden was attending COP27 and we watched his speech and if you like compare like similar heads of state speeches from COP26 to COP27 you notice that everyone's saying the same broad thing about like yeah we care we're gonna do something but the list of like impacts of climate change have just gotten worse 
from like cop to cop, you can notice in everyone's speeches that the list of like, oh, this is affecting us in X, Y, Z way is like getting worse. But people's like goals for cop are getting like, getting also worse. They're they're not saying that we're going to act proportionally to how much of a damage it's having. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, the speech, Biden's speech was not it. I will like tell you about it some other time, but it was, it. I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it feels like everything to me, like when I've heard from it, feels very greenwashing. So like going into the next like kind of thing, like did you feel like there was a lot of greenwashing from negotiators, whether that be from like sponsors, whatever it is? Like what did you feel like uh, in the atmosphere when you were there? Yeah, I think like I think greenwashing as a term started is a very corporate thing to do. Um, and it's a very like I, I come from Berkeley and over here you have all these like big companies, you know, trying to come to Berkeley and a lot of consulting firms are software engineering and they have this new sustainability department and all my friends are like, oh, you should apply. And I'm like, they don't know anything about sustainability, but they claim to be net zero. And I like th- that's like example one of greenwashing, you know, and those companies are they I don't know if it's because of ignorance or denial or they're just lying. I really don't know. But from that corporate level to the country level, greenwashing is very prominent. You won't see as much of it at the COP because it's a big mix of people who are like scientists and like other like policy professionals. But when you go talk to these countries, like I had the chance to talk to the U.S. delegation and in at India, okay, and someone from someone from one of the delegations, I'm not gonna quote them, was like, "Oh, climate change isn't even real. Like we have other impending dangers. Like you know, of like the like for example, this this delegate was telling me that oh, whatever we're facing right now with like cyclones and droughts, like this was a for a forever thing. Like it's not like because of climate change. So we gotta deal with like feeding our population." we can't be focusing on climate change right now and yeah I heard that and I was just like what do you mean and that person was educated you know that person was educated so I cannot believe that someone who is like a main negotiator for a country had that point of view that oh you know climate change is in real and then there are some other countries who are like oh we're already already on track to like climate change and that's I think what greenwashing is about and I think there's a technical aspect to it because I don't think a lot of countries or even companies know how to calculate their carbon emissions if you look up papers for carbon accounting there are a thousand ways just simple knowledge like if you talk about it in simple terms you have scope one two and three emissions right net zero would be if you account for scope one two and three emissions but no one accounts for scope three emissions because they're just really difficult to even account for so basically difficulty in accounting for all of this and just not knowing how to do it also contributes to greenwashing because countries are just trying to get the net zero label we're sustainability or green certified you know so i think it played like both things about like doing more research into how to maintain this carbon budget needs to be done and countries need to be more careful about how they're throwing this word around instead of just like being in that umbrella of companies that oh we're like in carbon neutral but no <laughs> you're not so yeah yeah I, I do think that greenwashing is happening a lot at COP and placing sort of like a hard line and with using that term that you're responsible is it needs to yeah needs more emphasis needs to be placed on that and yeah I I had more to say but I forgot 
Um, no, you're good. I mean, I think like while you're remembering, I think when you talk about like net zero, I mean, from what I understand about net zero, isn't it also just like you're able to continue to pollute? It just means you have to be taking more out. So it's like, to me, it's like, that's not the whole thing we need to do is phase out fossil fuels. And yeah. when we don't bring that, especially a cop, like the, nobody like in the language of the thing, I don't know what the term of whatever document came out of it. It didn't even have fossil fuels in it, like the word fossil fuel. So it's like, how are we going to phase out fossil fuels, not get to net zero? It's like, that's the greenwashing. It's like, let's get to a point where we don't need to rely on fossil fuels at all. And we can just be net what neutral, whatever it is. I don't know what that term would be. But... Yeah, I, I like, okay, honestly, I come from a technical, like STEM background. So I have, I have a different point of view on it and I'll, I'll like tell you about it. So, um, like I, I, I study carbon capture as a process a lot and a lot of people are against it because it's sort of like a loophole for countries, like you said, to continue emitting, but they are sort of reducing their emissions somewhere else. So it's like a net zero, but you're still emitting. So there are still consequences of like, you know, G, like greenhouse gas emissions. So I was talking to this professor from Saudi Arabia about like phasing out coal, you know, like uh, phasing out fossil fuels in Saudi Arabia, which is one of the major producers of oil and natural gas. I was talking to him and he was he was like, well, how can you phase out coal and oil? Like be realistic, it's being, it's used in every industry and they're not at fault. If you're carbon capturing, you're not producing more. And to be honest, I didn't have an, a rebuttal like argument for him. He made sense to me. And he said that if oil is used in every single industry in the world and we're not emitting any new emissions, realistically how can you just phase out oil and to be honest i don't think you can phase out oil as as much as i'd like to with looking at the technology that we currently have with how it's being scaled with the cost of it with countries that are like developing countries they are dependent on on fossil fuels i don't know what the answer is to the argument that if you Okay, this is a whole other argument, but I want to just tell you about it, and I'll just I'll cut it short. But it's interesting to interesting to think about. If you look at developed countries, they reach the point that they are by maximum use of fossil fuels. It's this it's this concept called nuts um nuts's curve, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, but yeah, it's basically that as you increase your fossil fuel use, you also increase your GDP, but also your carbon emissions. Okay. So now developing countries have this argument that why can't we follow that same path of development with fossil fuels, you know, to reach the same spot as you are? How can developed countries tell developing countries to like take another path and take a more expensive path when we are on that path of development? I don't know. I don't know if you understand, but developing countries like India and uh, China last year, instead of saying phase out coal, they said phase down. For this reason, they feel like they're being deprived of developing and supporting their large populations. And the only way you can support that sort of development would be using fossil fuels. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure why I'm telling you this, but I'm telling you that all these countries are highly dependent on coal. And realistically, I don't think it can phase out. And that's why all these net zero you know, emissions are really important, but it's also really important to have an actual account of what your emissions are instead of just doing all these loophole technologies, because I genuinely don't think it can, we can phase it out currently, at least for the next two decades. But I got a chance to speak to a scientist and 
it was it was heartbreaking for him to tell me that Kyati, we are headed towards doom and no matter how much we mitigate we can't reverse it at least for our generation so our generation is going to see the worst of climate change it's going to get worse 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 and it may start to calm down when we're 80 probably because there's a lag between if we remove all the carbon emissions and our atmosphere responding to it so our generation's not going to see a good a good a good world that's what he told me and a lot of scientists said at I, it, there was an ipcc panel there i would consider them to be a credible source but it was really sad that they said that to me and i believe them that we are sort of at doom and not reaching there i don't know where i went with all of this but yeah i mean i think the thing is i also think not trying though not in living in a world where we don't even try to either phase out or phase down on fossil fuels is a world that's already doomed and i think so many people in countries that are already being like getting the worst of climate change not getting the worst but getting extremely bad consequences of climate change they are they need that hope they need to be able to feel like we we can't give up you know what i'm saying like i don't know how to how to word it but we can't give up because if we give up we're giving up on you know people that need need to be able to have a livable future and to be able yeah. to not see a world where fossil fuels continue to develop at yeah. the rate that they are so i think for me i always i that's why i'm the hopeful environmentalist you know i'm not always hopeful at all i'm also very doomist but yeah. <laughs> at the same time i always try to bring hope because i feel like when doom is always on the top of the agenda it's something that people are just okay what's the point of acting and we need to be able to feel hopeful to be able to yeah. act and to be able to envision a world where we want to live in where everyone can thrive in so that's kind of how i i think of it and i do think yes there's a lot of doom but you know science also says if we if we stop polluting and if we phase down a lot like significantly we'll be able the atmosphere will be able to respond in like like you said, a decade to two decades. And yeah. I think that is like, I think with current policies, it won't happen. But if we continue to push for better and more strict policies, we will be able to get to a future like that. And that's just, that's my hope. I really, I do hope we get to that. And I think youth getting their voices heard, more indigenous voices being heard, more historically underrepresented voices being heard will be able to get us out of this consequence. It's not going to be the people who led us to this consequence. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, as much as like I'm telling you that oh, we're reaching towards doom, and that's what I believe. I'm still in this field, still hoping to pursue a master's in this field with a lot of hope that you and I and other youth and other people who are as passionate can make more of a difference, considering that we are. The generation now that would soon be making the decisions so i am i am hopeful <laughs> yeah I'm glad to hear that yeah but no i don't like i totally hear the doom because i i think like three times a day i like go back and forth between okay you have to enjoy your life and then oh my gosh like it's 55 degrees and it's december and the average temperature should be like 15 degrees colder where i am so like yeah. so i totally feel that yeah yeah um, but so now going to more of a positive thing, what was a key takeaway from COP27 that gave you hope? <laughs> a 
like like we both mentioned, seeing a lot of youth there and the fact that the first time there was a children and youth pavilion at the cop that was literally like a sanctuary of just like children and like yeah, I feel I felt older <laughs> and I'm 21, but there were a lot of youth activists there from their community and it, it felt like a family atmosphere. And that sort of gives me hope from COP27 that there were a lot more newer topics and newer stakeholders introduced at the COP, be it the children, children and the youth, be it the indigenous people and the element of climate justice, which I don't think was was a point of discussion at all at previous COPs, but it was more of a discussion this COP because it happened in Africa. Um, but these the fact that we have a lot more that the argument on climate change has caught in a lot more deeper and wider gives me hope that we're headed towards um headed towards a good future. And now that we don't only have Greta Thunberg, who is our youth-like activist, but we have a thousand more, including you, you know, who are equally powerful and attending the COP and have an equal impact. So even though she wasn't there, I don't know if you read the news, there were a lot other youth activists that made a lot great speeches, brought up great points, and that makes me hopeful that anyone can make a difference if you just care. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think like as much as I love hearing from Greta, I also want to hear from everyone else because I think we all have we all have a, the same goal, um, but we have different ways of getting there and we have different perspectives, whether that be, you know, traditional knowledge or just something unique that we bring to the table. Um, I think, you know, being able to hear from, like you said, thousands of youth instead of just one Again, nothing bad on Greta. I love her. She's an amazing activist as well. But there's so many other amazing activists that deserve their story to be heard. They deserve to be at COP um, and telling their story and telling their perspectives and experiences. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to get to a world that's equitable for everybody. You know, if it's just one side and one person or one country or just, you know, the rich of the rich, we're not going to be able to reach that equitable world. Because um, they're not going to hear from experiences of people who aren't surrounded by them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's I love that, that you talk about, you know, all the different activists that are there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I really hope that your podcast is actually heard by a lot more people. I'm hoping these questions that I brought up in our in like our discussion that that confused me about like what actually is the solution I'm hoping to also like talk to a few of my professors and other like scientists from around the world to just gather their thoughts um and yeah I hope that also just education in this field is really important people I don't think realize and I'm hopeful that education is playing such a big role you're playing a role you and I getting educated plays a big role because we're spreading it um, yeah, and yeah, I hope COP15 is great for you. Gather as many perspectives as you can. People have interesting perspectives. Some are problematic, but trying to understand why they have their perspectives is is help, is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's true. I think, you know, we need these different perspectives. Cause I, I read something recently. It was like, I was like, oh, we just need to do renewable energy no matter what. Like it needs to be great, whatever. And then hearing that like some of the renewable energy sites that they're building on are like traditional indigenous land and I was like 
wow, I didn't even think of that. I was like, originally I was just like, just put it anywhere, put it anywhere. And that's like my privilege speaking of like, just put it anywhere, right? Who cares? And it's like, how would I like it if someone came and like put like a wind turbine on my house? Like, I wouldn't really like that, right? So I, it's interesting and amazing to hear different perspectives and, but they're not just saying don't build here, right? They're saying, let's, let's reach this uh, place of being able to get to a renewable future together, just have our voices there. And we can wow. find space. We can find different ways to get there and not be dependent on fossil fuels or whatever the other thing is. So it's wow. it's amazing that we get to hear all these different perspectives. And you know, I'm not just sitting in my bubble saying, "Oh, let's just do this, this, and this." You can to hear you get to hear from all these different people and all these different perspectives. So like and like the example you brought up, I feel like it starts from like be it a country or a community being wronged. I feel like it's all of this starts with like acknowledging that yes, I'm sorry for for doing that to you, you know? I'm sorry for building on your land and not acknowledging your land rights. How can I make it right? And not just like doing it because it's like better for like good for the larger, like it's it's a larger good thing, you know, like good for the majority but not good for some so if it's not good for some you acknowledge it you know just it doesn't take a lot to acknowledge that yeah I fucked up sorry and yeah I'll fix it I think people just want like you said want their voices to be heard and if you acknowledge that you hear them and are and are gonna fix what you did because you have that power that's all some people want so yeah and don't worry I curse all the time but um (laughs) yeah it's true like I think some people just feel like you can't they feel like they can't be wrong and like you know acknowledging that your perspective on something was incorrect or harmed somebody is a way to get to a better future like me thinking okay if I said no we're still gonna do this like because it's better for everybody for for more people yeah that's that's wrong right if I come to the perspective and say okay I had a wrong perspective let me hear why it's wronging somebody and then change my actions and change you know, how we get to a livable future for everybody. And that's, we're only going to get there with everybody. We're not going to get there with just some people. We have to get there with everybody because everybody on the planet will be impacted. Everyone will be impacted differently, but we're all going to be impacted. So we all need to be there putting our perspectives out. Yeah, and I think that's that's entirely what climate justice or environmental justice is about. And I recently read that environmental justice is social justice. I was like, whoa, you're right. It's all interconnected, you know, but yeah 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 everything on literally everything on our planet is interconnected like me and you have never met and you're in California and I'm in New York but we've had we might have very different experiences throughout our lives Mm -hmm. but we're impacted by climate change we I probably had like an avocado from California so it's like right (laughs) I don't know you but our earth is still the same we're all connected in some way we will walk on the same oh. soil. So we all need to be helping this earth, whether you're oh. like a fossil fuel CEO or you're an environmental activist. You need yeah, help. I mean, you know, this year, sorry, this year's fossil fuel, like a uh, representation, like delegation at the COP was one of the highest. I don't know if you read that number, but I saw that around 600 plus fossil fuel um, supporters or like, you know, activists were at COP and there was a lot of like criticism about that like why are they there what did they so yeah I I don't get why they're there (laughs) like I really it's it like 
hurts me <laughs> because like why are we put it, giving them a voice okay remember when I said everybody's perspective matters I I take that back okay their perspective doesn't yeah. matter because their perspective is let's continue to burn the world so that I can make money <laughs> but the thing is like like I told you I spoke to this professor from Saudi Arabia and he told me that fossil fuel companies are doing nothing wrong and I think that was the day I realized that these companies don't think they're responsible. So I think while I agree with you that they don't deserve a voice, I think these people, because they have so much power and they have like so much market share, it's important for the world to convince them they're wrong and get them on the same boat as us. Because if they're not on the same like boat as us, they're just going to continue on their path. So I feel like, I hope that when they came to COP, they learned that, yeah, they can make a bigger difference than they think they can you know, because they have to start. But yeah. And I always say too, like it needs to start with empathy and everyone needs to have empathy. Oh. Like I can't imagine sitting there and knowing that, you know, if I was a fossil fuel company and knowing I was extracting from somebody's home or I was responsible for somebody's, de even one person's death, right? One person's death is too many that I would have caused or someone would have caused, you know? So I don't I it's I could go on forever <laughs> yeah, <you and> I <laughs> <both>. <laughs> but um this was a great conversation is there anything else that you want to add to this amazing conversation just an observation at the COP Saudi Arabia had one of the largest pavilions the one of the largest and it was empty throughout throughout it was empty and it made me really happy <laughs> just that yeah well we love that <laughs> I'm glad that you that's also a great takeaway right? <laughs> it was empty I'm not kidding I went there for week one and there was never a crowd at that pavilion ever we yeah. love that yeah <laughs> you know yeah. other people might not realize but the youth realizes so <laughs> yeah but that all I have <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on to the podcast thank you so that wraps up our very last interview with our last amazing youth activists this has been a very insightful experience for me to be able to interview all these amazing activists and hearing their stories and hearing more and learning more about the cop experience because I wasn't able to go to the one in Egypt so I want to thank every single youth activist who was on this podcast and every single youth activist who attended COP to raise their voice and to raise awareness for climate change and to advocate for climate change and advocate for people who couldn't be there as well. So thank you everyone for being on and thank you for everyone who listened as well. I know these were lengthier episodes, but they really were amazing and insightful. So I hope you learned a lot from them. And as always, thank you for listening to The Hopeful Environmentalist. And remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.